Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 6 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The Origin of the Hallowell Poem. All these facts concerning the gradual changes in the religious character of the institution, which, by putting together the old manuscripts we are enabled to derive from the legend of the craft, are supported by historical documents, as will be seen, and thus the legend, notwithstanding the many defects and errors as to the dates which deface it, becomes really valuable as an authority. But this is not all. In comparing the Hallowell poem with the later manuscripts, we find unmistakable evidence that they have a different origin. Let us see what we can learn about that origin. The Hallowell poem comes to us from a like source to that of the stonemasons of Germany. It is not an exact copy of any German document, but its author must have been greatly impressed with the same peculiar thoughts and principles of the Steinmetzen of the Middle Ages. That these had a common root is most likely but this is far from claiming that the Hallowell poem was first of all German. At most, the facts point to the same sort of an origin with the additional confidence that the English product was by far the earliest in appearance. The proof of this is plain to anyone who will carefully read the Hallowell poem and compare its idea of the rise and proper progress of geometry with that exhibited in the later manuscript, Constitutions. These latter trace the science, as it is always called, from Lamech to Nimrod, who found or invented the craft of masonry at the tower, building of the Tower of Babel, and then to Euclid, who established it in Egypt, whence it was brought by the Israelites into Judea, and there again established by David and Solomon at the building of the temple. Thence, by a curious disregard of dates and times, it was brought by one Namus Grecus, who had been a workman at the temple, and who organized the science in France under the auspices of Charles Martel. From France it went to England in the time of St. Alban. After a long halt because of the Danish and Saxon wars, it finally took root at York, where Prince Edwin called an assembly and gave the Masons their charges under the authority of a charter granted by King Athelstan. It will be observed that in this later legend, the Masonry of England is supposed to have been derived from France, and due honor is paid to Charles Martel as the founder of the order in that kingdom. Hence, we may rationally conclude that the legend of the craft was modified by the influence of the French Masons, who, as history informs us, were brought over into England at an early period. In this respect, authentic history and the legend coincide, and the one corroborates the other. The variations of the Hallowell poem from later manuscripts are as follows. It omits all reference to Lamech and his sons, but passing rapidly over the events at the Tower of Babel, the building of which it ascribes to Nebuchadnezzar, it begins if we accept the few lines inserted in the middle of the poem, with the legend of Euclid and the establishment of masonry by him in Egypt. There is no mention of King Solomon's temple, whereas the history of the building of that edifice as a Masonic labor is an important part of all the later manuscripts. The legend of the four crowned martyrs concerning whom the later manuscripts are silent is given at some length, and they are described as good masons as on earth should go. These were the patron saints of the German operative masons of the Middle Ages, 
but there's no evidence that they were adopted in recent years as such by the English Brotherhood. Solomon in England and the two Saints John in America being now selected as the patrons of the craft. There is no allusion in the Hallowell poem to Charles Martel and to the account of the introduction of masonry in England from France during his reign, which forms some part of all the later manuscripts. Neither is there any notice of the masonry in England during the time of St. Alban, but the poem credits its entrance into that country to King Athelstan. Lastly, while the later manuscripts record the calling of the assembly at the city of York by Prince Edwin, the Hallowell makes no mention of York as the place where the assembly was called, nor of Edwin presiding over it. This fact destroys the theory of Dr. Oliver that the Hallowell poem is a copy of the so-called Old York Constitutions. From all these considerations, I think that we are justified in assigning to the Hallowell poem and to the other later manuscripts two distinct influences, both centuries old, but the one much more ancient than the other. They agree, however, in a general resemblance, different only in the details. This suggests the idea of a common belief upon which, as a foundation, two different structures have been built. Chapter 7. The Legend, the Germ of Masonic History The legend of the craft, as it has been given in this work from the example of the Dowland Manuscript, appears to have been accepted for centuries by the body of the fraternity as a truthful history. Even at the present day, this legend is exerting an influence in the formation of various parts of the ritual. This influence has even been extended to the adoption of historical views of the rise and progress of the institution, which have, in reality, no other foundation than the statements contained in the legend. For these reasons, the legend of the craft is of great importance and value to the student of Masonic history, notwithstanding the conflicting periods and unsupported theories in which it abounds. Accepting it simply as a document for which so long a period claimed and received the fullest faith of the fraternity whose history it professed to give, a faith not yet dead, it is worthy of our consideration whether we cannot, by a careful examination of its general spirit and meaning, beyond the bare story it contains, discover some key to the true origin and character of that old and extensive brotherhood of which it is the earliest record. We shall find in it the germ of many truths and the understanding of several historic facts concerning which it makes important suggestions. In the first place, it must be remarked that we have no way of determining the precise period when this legend was first composed, nor when it was first accepted by the craft as a history of the institution. The earliest written record that has been discovered among the English Masons bears a date which is certainly not later than about the end of the 14th century. But this by no means proves that no earlier example ever existed, of which the constitutions, which have so far been brought to light, may only be copies. On the contrary, we have abundant reason to believe that all the old records which have been published are, with, say, the exception of the Hallowell manuscript, in fact derived from some original text which, however, has hitherto escaped the untiring search of students. If, for instance, we take the Sloan manuscript, number 3848, the assumed date of which is A.D. 1646, and the Harleian manuscript, number 2054, the date of which is supposed to be A.D. 1660, and if we carefully compare the one with the other, we must come to the conclusion either that the latter was copied from the former, or that both were copied from some earlier record as the Cook's manuscript. 
that from the shelves of the British Museum or from the archives of some old lodge, we may still confidently hope for further copies to appear from time to time and supply other and even earlier links in our chain of Masonic history. The resemblances in language and ideas and the similarity of arrangement that are found in both of the above documents very clearly indicate a common origin. While the occasional errors with words can be safely credited to the carelessness of the clumsy copyist, Brother Hugan, who is a high authority, styles the Harleian from its close resemblance and indifferent copy of the Sloan. The Reverend A. F. A. Woodford, who sets the earlier date of 1625 to the original Harleian, says it is nearly a verbatim word-for-word copy of Dowland's form, slightly later, and must have been transcribed either from an early and almost contemporary, nearly of even date copy of Dowland's, or it is really a copy of Dowland's itself. These opinions by experts strengthen the view that there was a common origin for all of these manuscripts. If we continue to compare the manuscripts of later date, as far even as the Papworth, which is supposed to have been copied about the year 1720, the same family likeness will be found in all. It is true that in the writing of the later manuscripts, those, for example, that were copied toward the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th centuries, the language has been improved, some few out-of-date terms have been avoided, and more recent words used instead of them. Names taken from the Bible have been sometimes used with a greater respect for correct spelling, and a feeble attempt has been made to give a moderate appearance to the document. But in all of them, there is the same misspelling of words, the same disregard for the rules of grammar, the same arrangement of the story, and a preservation and repetition of all the statements, false and trustworthy, which are to be found in the earliest examples. We have said that the legend of the craft, as set forth in the later manuscripts, was for centuries accepted by the operative Masons of England, with all its mixture of the order of events as a true history of the rise and progress of Masonry from the earliest times, and that the influence of this belief is still felt among the speculative Masons of this present day, and that it has impressed the modern rituals with its views. That fact gives to this legend an importance and a value beyond its character as a mere legend and its value will be greatly increased if we are able to show that, notwithstanding the myths with which it abounds, the legend of the craft really contains the germ of historical truth. It is indeed a historical myth, one of that species of myths so common to be found in the study of ancient beliefs, which has a foundation in historical truth, with the admixture of a certain amount of fiction in the use of personages and circumstances that are not historical or are not historically treated. Indeed, it may be considered as almost rising into the higher class of historical myths in which the historical and truthful rule over whatever there may be of fiction. In looking at the legend of the medieval Masons from this point of view, it would be well if we would govern ourselves by the weighty thought of Max Muller, who says in writing on the related subject that everything is true, natural, significant, if we enter with a reverent spirit into the meaning of ancient art and ancient language. Everything becomes false, miraculous, and unmeaning. If we interpret the deep and mighty words of the seers of old in the shallow and feeble sense of modern chroniclers. Examined in the light of this sentiment, which teaches us to look upon the language of the myth or legend as containing a deeper meaning than that which is shown upon its face, we shall find in the legend of the craft many points of historical reference, and where not historical, then symbolical, which will free it of much of what has been called its absurdities. It is to an examination of the legend in this thoughtful spirit that we now invite the reader. Let it be understood that we direct our attention to the legend contained in the later manuscripts, such as the Dowland, Harleian, Sloan, etc., of which a copy has been given on other pages of this work, 
and that the reference is made only as occasion may require to the Hallowell manuscript to compare or explain. This is done because the legend of the later manuscripts is undoubtedly the one which was adopted by the English Masons, while that of the Hallowell manuscript appears to have been of a separate growth, which never took any extensive root as a whole in the soil of English Masonry. In the further chapters devoted to this subject, which may be viewed as critical comments, commentaries discussing legend of the craft, we will consider the meaning of the various other legends into which it is divided. Chapter 8. The Origin of Geometry The manuscript begins with a prayer to the Trinity. This prayer is nearly the same as that which begins the Harleian, the Sloan, the Lansdowne, and indeed all the other manuscripts except the Hallowell and the Cook. From this fact, we may justly infer that there was a common parent, an editio princeps, whence each of these manuscripts was copied. The very slight changes in words, such as Father of Kings in the Dowland, which is Father of Heaven in the others, will not affect this conclusion, for they may be fairly credited to careless copyists. The reference to the Trinity in all these prayers is also a clear proof of the Christian character of the building corporations of the Middle Ages, a proof that is supported by historical evidence. In the German constitutions of the stonemasons, the invocation is, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in the name of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and also in honor of the four crowned martyrs, a prayer that shows the Roman Catholic spirit of the German statutes. While the lack of all reference to the Virgin and the martyrs gives a Protestant character to the English manuscripts. Next follow remarks on the seven liberal arts and sciences, the nature and intention of each being briefly described. In all the manuscripts, even the earliest, the Hallowell, we find the same reference to them, and almost word for word the same description. It is not surprising that these sciences should have as large a place in the old constitutions as making the very foundation of masonry when we reflect that an equal position was given to them in the Middle Ages as possessing the whole body of human knowledge. Thus, Mosheim tells us that in the 11th century they were taught in the greatest part of the schools, and Hollenshed, who wrote in the 16th century, says that they were a part of the course of study that was taught in the universities. Speculative masonry continues to this day to pay respect to these seven sciences and has adopted them among its important symbols in the second degree. The connection sought to be established in the old manuscripts between them and masonry would seem to show the existence of a praiseworthy desire among the operative masons of the Middle Ages to raise the character of their craft above the ordinary standard of workmen. An elevation that history informs us was actually affected the Freemasons of the Guild holding themselves and being held by others as of higher rank and greater requirements than were the rough Masons who did not belong to the Society of Builders. The manuscript continues by saying that geometry and masonry are identical. Thus, in naming and defining the seven liberal arts and sciences, geometry is placed as the fifth. The which science, says the legend, is called masonry. Now this claim that geometry and masonry are the same sciences has been held from time of the earliest records to the present day by all the operative masons who came before the 18th century, as well as by the speculative masons after that period. In the ritual of the fellow crafts degree used ever since, at least from the middle of the last century, the candidate is told that masonry and geometry are synonymous terms that they mean the same. The lodge room, wherever speculative masonry has spread, shows, by the place of the shining letter in the east, that the belief is still held. Gadik, the author of a German lexicon of Freemasonry, 
says that as geometry is among the mathematical sciences the one which has the most especial reference to architecture, we can therefore, under the name of geometry, understand the whole art of Freemasonry. Hutchinson, speaking of the letter G, says that it denotes geometry, and declares that as a symbol it has always been used by artificers, that is, architects and master builders, those who designed and contrived by Freemasons. The modern ritual maintains this legendary idea of the close connection that exists between geometry and masonry, and tells us that the former is the basis on which the latter, as a superstructure or building, is erected. Thus, we find that masonry has adopted mathematical figures such as angles, squares, triangles, circles, and especially the 47th proposition of Euclid as leading symbols. And this idea of putting geometry into masonry as a main element, the idea that is suggested in the legend, was so thoroughly accepted that in the 18th century a speculative mason was known as a geometrical mason. We have found this idea of geometry as the foundation science of masonry set forth in the legend of the craft. It will be well to see how it grew in the Middle Ages in the accredited history of the craft, Thus, we shall have discovered another link in the chain which unites the myths of the legend with the true history of the institution. The operative masons of the Middle Ages, who are said to have derived the knowledge of their art as well as the organization as a guild of builders from the architects of Lombardy, who were the first to assume the title of Freemasons, were in the possession of secrets which enabled them everywhere to construct the buildings on which they were engaged according to the same principles, and to keep up, even in the most distant countries, a correspondence so that every member was made acquainted with even the very smallest improvement in the art which had been discovered by any other. One of these secrets was the knowledge of the science of symbolism, and the other was to know how to apply the principles of geometry to the art of building. It is certain, says Paley, that geometry lent its aid in the planning and designing of buildings, and, he adds, that probably the equilateral triangle was the basis of most formations. The symbols of geometry found in the ritual of modern Freemasonry may be considered as the remains of the geometrical secrets of the Freemasons of the Middle Ages, which are now admitted to be lost. As these founded their operative art on the knowledge of geometry, and as the secrets of which they boasted as distinguishing them from the rough masons of the same period consisted in the applying of the principles of that science to the erection of buildings, it is not surprising that in their traditional history they should have so joined architecture with geometry and that with their own art of building, as to speak of geometry and masonry as being the same, or, as synonymous terms, to use a familiar expression. The fifth science, says the Dowland manuscript, is called geometry, the which science is called masonry. Remembering the tendency of all men to enlarge upon their own pursuits, it is not surprising that the Freemasons of the Middle Ages should have believed and said that there is no handicraft that is wrought by man's hand, but it is wrought by geometry. All this discussion in the old manuscripts on the likeness of geometry and masonry gives to the legend of the craft a sentiment and a purpose, the existence of which is supported by the accredited evidence of the history of the period. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.